In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Hi. Hi. Whew, how are you? What's I'm, new? <laughs> I'm pretty good. Um, what's new? It was Davey and I's anniversary this last past weekend. Yeah. What did you do? <laughs> 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 um <laughs> well you know we are trying to save money we don't have that much money to save so we're, we were gonna just try to keep it you know keep it cute <laughs> a cost effective yeah yeah but we had, we had a really nice day we went to i don't go out of the house hardly at all these days like literally <clears throat> if it's not going to see you or to the like store i don't go out yeah and it was just really nice to be out for a good portion of the day and not have to worry about the dogs and window shopped and went to all these stores that we used to go to that we haven't been to in a million years. <laughs> Do you know that, that like, um, store on state street, Tienda Ho that's been there forever is actually closing forever. Oh my God. Is it really? Yeah. There, everything is like, like 20 to 50 or whatever percent off. It's crazy. Wow. I don't know what that they're going to do with that. Cause it's like it, built it, like a cave. <laughs> It has been there since I was literally a child. It looks like it's been there. It looks like it. the city was built around it. Built around it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we went around there. We went to like a brewery, had some beers, and then we went and got um, sushi. Yeah, and we just spent the night. I think we watched a movie or something, but it was really nice. Cute. Um, that is the newest stuff that happened to me this week. What about you? Um, I dyed my hair hot pink. Oh, yeah. The picture looks great. Thanks. I love it. That, I think it's a good choice. Thank you. I'm enjoying it. I get. I have yet to go anywhere where somebody hasn't commented on it uh-huh. uh, in a positive way so far. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's fun. I I was just like, I'm gonna have pink hair now. I love and it, and I do. <laughs> have you done it before? I've never had hot pink hair before. I've always wanted hot pink hair and never gotten it. And I was like, you know, why not? Who cares? A very wise woman once said, why not take a crazy chance? Why not do a crazy dance? (laughs) I mean. (laughs) Is that Miley Cyrus? (laughs) No, it is Hilary Duff. (laughs) Oh, well, I'm sad that I'm. Actually kind of pleased with myself that I didn't recognize that one. How dare you? <laughs> I only know her song, Come Clean. You know more than Coming Clean. Oh, that's true. I do. I know, like, I think Stranger is her best song. Mm-hmm. It's not <laughs> The Math, where she sings, if you can't do the math, then get out of the equation. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, but I love that. Right. I wanted to actually tell you about something really crazy that happened, or really adorable, I should say, that happened yesterday. Okay. okay. I was at the gas station, my big day out, (laughs) and I was wearing a My Favorite Murder fan cult hat. Oh, cute. So I'm filling my tank, and this girl at the next pump over taps me or, like, comes over to me, and she's like, hey, are you wearing a My Favorite Murder hat? And I was like, yes, I am. And she's like, oh, my God, I'm a huge fan of them. And she's like, sometimes I wear my shirt. I love when I see their merch. And I was like, oh, that's so cute. And we talked about it for a second, and I was like, should I tell her about our podcast? Is that weird? (laughs) Did you? Yes, I stopped and I was okay. like, "By the way, 
do you like podcasts in general or is that like a one-off? She's like, no, I love podcasts. She's like, I'm actually going on a long drive. I'm looking for a new podcast. I was like, well, we have a podcast. (laughs) And she's like, oh my God, what is it? And I told her like very briefly the concept and like a sentence, shockingly for me. And she was like, oh my God, that's so cool. I'm totally going to listen. She's like, what's it called? And uh, I was like, that's so great. And she's like, nice to meet you. Her name is Caitlin. So I told her I'm going to shout her out on this episode. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Caitlin. Thanks for maybe listening. Yeah, she said that. I was like, this is great because you have an option of something to listen to now and your long drive. And I just got like really good feelings from this. So we both Aww. win. And she was like, and you got a new listener. And I was like, I'm holding oh, you to it. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Thank you. Well, serendipitous and also pretty cool. Yeah, Thanks, Caitlin. Love that. It looks like you also have a recommendation. Oh, yeah. We watched Murder Among the Mormons, finally. Oh, I don't think I've seen that. Is It's on Netflix. Is it about bombing? Uh, no, yes. Yes, and. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, it's It was insane. It was insane. Hmm. So you recommend watching it? Oh, my God. Highly recommend. I was okay. gripped from... I was like, okay, let's watch it, because, you know, Davy grew up Mormon. It's a true crime thing. Let's watch it. It'll be cute. And I was like, we have to finish this. We binged it all in a row. Fascinating. Yeah. Check it out. Well, Matt, I have a story for you. Mm, Okay. What is it? Okay. So the other day, I was in the bathroom. I turned off the lights. And I said, Bloody Mary, three times. And I turned on the lights. And in the mirror was this ghostly woman who had an important message for us. And it was that Ripped from the Headlines has a Patreon. Oh my gosh. I know. Did she, right? Was it written in blood? Was it did it start writing <laughs> did it start writing the messages in blood on the mirror as she was like staring at you? Well, when she described the different tiers, she started writing it in blood for sure. So she was she was like, Hey, by the way, for only a dollar a month you can support a podcast you love, and then for five and ten dollars a month you can still be supporting a podcast you love and be getting all kinds of cool bonus content. Um, like a fashion court video episode, a bonus episode of Law & Order SVU, a free sticker, discounts on merch. I mean, Bloody Mary really laid it all out for me. Wow. And these are like tears for the Patreon, not bloody tears from her face, right? Correct. Okay, got it. T-I-E-R-S. Yes. Yep. Mm, You're brave. I know. I mean, I just felt like I needed an otherworldly connection to receive a a kind of a life-altering message. And there it was. That's pretty life-altering. I'm going to join. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine I join my own Patreon. <laughs> um, you have a correction? Kind of. Um, okay. You were talking about in a previous episode, I think maybe oh. two episodes ago. You... Did I refer to something as Southern Gothic? And no, no. It's definitely not? No, okay. no. It's not necessarily correction. You were asking, we were posing a question to listeners and someone has an answer for us. Oh, oh, it was um, about Weezer and all of them? Yes. Great. The genre, uh, this is from friend of the podcast, Scary Hours, so thank you. Love it. Genre is nerd rock. Nerd rock. Okay, I love that. Yeah, so there you go. I'll have to I'll have to um, see if there's some other bands out there that I should be listening to for nerd rock. I'm sure there are. <laughs> well, do you want to get into this week's episode? I'm champing at the bit. <laughs> Do you think that any... Okay, I feel like occasionally we should probably introduce ourselves. Oh, yeah. So that's Matt. I'm N. Hi. Welcome to Ripped from the Headlines. <laughs> I love how we're introducing we... ourselves, but I'm just talking over you. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. 
Uh, and we are on season two, episode 13 of the original Law and Order. And this episode was titled Severance. Dun, dun, dun. So the episode opens on three people wearing what appear to be like floor length trench coats. And the shoulder pads are so severe in these <laughs> trench coats that it looks like they're smuggling football uniforms <laughs> underneath the trench coats. They, the sh- her shoulder pads extended a solid like six inches beyond each shoulder. It was ridiculous. Did you notice that? She could have been trying to smuggle in like a mantle from a fireplace. A hundred percent. Or like a, a big curtain rod, you know, mm-hmm. underneath. So they're on like a the roof of a what appears to be like a parking building or parking lot building, I guess. And there's like three of them kind of talking to each other. And there's like a brunette up ahead of them. And they're talking about like not being late for this meeting, this deal that they have to make. And... One of the women goes over to a parking attendant to get changed so she can make a call at a payphone. What a blast from the past that was. Oh, right. While the other, like the two men go ahead and the the brunette woman is also kind of going ahead. So she gets on the phone and she's like, tell him 15 minutes, we'll be there, don't worry about it. We also learn her name is Moskowitz, by the way. I love that name. It's very detective-y. It's like... It, a detective Moskowitz would be kind of a a perfect Law and Order character. I agree, but I also just am totally distracted by it because in the American Tale series, it was Fievel's last name was Moskowitz. <laughs> oh my god, I love that! <laughs> yeah. So suddenly, a big black van kind of speeds by them, screeching tires, and Moskowitz, and they like crash through a barrier, and Moskowitz runs toward her car to find that the two men that she was with have been shot dead and she screams and the cops arrive by the way i need to confirm something with you either i wasn't paying excellent attention or they never edited in gunshot sounds because i never heard gunshots uh, i i don't think there were if there were gunshot sounds they were very low they weren't like okay no it wasn't like that yeah. at all okay Logan and Soretta arrive. Moskowitz kind of fills them in on what's happened, and she says she doesn't know where that brunette woman went. Like, she just vanished from the top of the parking lot. Thankfully, the parking lot attendant appears to be, like, Rain Man and remembers everything with perfect clarity, and he's like, it was a black van, this type, Canadian plates. It had a sticker that said this, you know, company name, which is like a Hertz rental car in Canada. And Soretta goes, that's it? As though he didn't have enough details. Like in a crisis, I feel like most people are like, I don't know, it was another human being. Maybe they had brown hair. Yeah. He was so specific. I was like, Soretta, get a grip. He's doing your job for you. Seriously, they usually are lucky if they get a partial plate. Yes. P.S. In this scene and in a few others, Soretta is dressed like David the Gnome. (laughs) I know every word to that theme song. I love David the Gnome, and I can't wait for that outfit to be highlighted on the next fashion court that we do. So then we get the opening sequence, and I decided to head to a spa. I got a massage, a seaweed wrap, a face peel, some light energy work, and now I'm back. Light energy work. I like that. Yeah. (laughs) So we're at the station, and they're all confused about why somebody would be gunning down these admin because i guess moskowitz and the two guys who got killed work in marketing essentially or yeah marketing and somebody apparently reported the van they get a call and apparently the van is by the train station 
So they head down to the train station to try to catch that person before they board the train. So they run to the tracks or run to the train station. They go to a clerk and say, like, what time, where's the Montreal train? What time does it depart? And she points them toward platform, I don't know, nine and three quarters, let's say. (laughs) And they run up there. By the way, at this point, they have no idea who they're looking for. So I was really confused by this scene because they just head to the train station in the hopes of finding someone. I know. I don't know exactly what the, what was the suspicious act they were going to witness that was going to exactly. clue them off. But I guess they're just totally. like in pursuit. Right. <laughs> so I guess maybe they figure we'll try to question everybody before this train departs or something, which I, I think they kind of do because there's a line where they're like, okay, six, tra- six cabins down, two to go. Right. So they basically start questioning every white man on the train because that was the description that the parking lot attendant had given them. And they find this guy, they, and they're like, hey, can we look in your bag? And Soretta dumps it out, and a big bag of weapons, or a big pile of weapons falls out. Uh, a knife, a gun, brass knuckles, <laughs> I mean, everything, a grenade, everything you could imagine. Bazooka. Just poly- yes, a bazooka. A cannon. Pouring out. So they arrest him. Take him to the station, and we learn that his name is Kemp. That's his last name. In interrogation, Logan is like, you had a bunch of weapons. Like, you're obviously doing up to something. And Kemp replies, so I had a piece. So I was a naughty boy. And again, it was just one of those, my my soul left my body (laughs) when they do those gross things like naughty little boy or big daddy on Law and Order. Please don't ever do that, Dick Wolf. (laughs) So they don't really get anything out of Kemp during the interview, but they know that he has six arrests uh, previously, but no convictions. And they're kind of waiting for information on ballistics to see if the gun that was in the bag matches the gunshot wounds that they saw at the crime scene. Kemp tries to kind of sell them on some story about how he rented the van to pick up a clock. And Soretta's like, okay, well then why do you have a knife and a semi-automatic weapon? And Kemp's response is, what do you want? It's New York. You know. Um, so I was just kind of wondering, I know you're planning to move back east. Should I get you a semi-automatic gun as a going away present? Oh, uh, I mean, it's it was something I was going to get at the duty-free shop when I got to the airport. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> So Ballistics comes in and says that the gun does not match the gunshot wounds, but the knife in the bag did have human blood on it. And inside the van, they also find gunshot residue, but they can't link any of this to Kemp because they've got a knife with blood on it when nobody was stabbed. And then they've got gunshot residue, but bullets that don't match. So they're like, what is going on here? (laughs) So they do the next logical thing, which is go to a random diner that I guess is nearby and ask the servers if they remember seeing Kemp. That was a big jump, right? Yes. Okay, so this is amazing. So they show his picture to a server. She's like, you know, in the perfect traditional, like, diner mm-hmm. costume, mm-hmm. apron, holding the cup of coffee, or the, the <laughs> jug of coffee. And her line, when they show him, or show her his photo, she says, 150 bagels a day with cream cheese, and this turnip wants peanut butter. Have you ever heard of anyone being referred to as a turnip? Uh, not any more than I've heard anyone say, they're trying to give me the business, see? <laughs> I feel like turnip is an insult from David the Gnome. <laughs> so Logan and Soretta think about this and the evidence from the antique shop that they found in the van and essentially what they're, the line of 
logic that they're following is that Kemp is a really clever uh, criminal of some sort because he has all these previous convictions, but nothing's ever stuck. And he planted all of this sort of like false evidence to support his story that he was just in town buying a big clock and he made sure to do something memorable in this diner so that the waitress would recognize him and kind of be able to say like, oh no, he was here at that time or whatever. Mm-hmm. So they go back to interview Moskowitz, uh, the woman who was at the top of the parking garage, and ask her about the two men who were killed. And she says that Peter, one of the two men, didn't really like working in advertising. He was more of an artist, and she had convinced him to show his portraits recently at a gallery, and they had also kind of recently started seeing each other. So they go to Peter Coyle's apartment and find kind of too much evidence of how clean and perfect of a life Peter has been leading. So they kind of almost think that he's been leading a secret life. I don't think that either of those scenes end up being necessary in the story. A lot of scenes. And this was a very confusing episode. And I think it's because they talked to so many unnecessary people. Yeah, I definitely had to rewind a couple times and think about like, what is the purpose of this scene that we just saw? Me (laughs) I feel like there's a lot where I did not understand why we saw it. Same. So they figure that the brunette who was in the lot must be involved in this somehow. And so they go back to the parking lot and they ask if there have been any cars that have just stayed there um, since, the, since the shooting. And they, they, the parking attendant directs them to this car that's been there for 48 hours. It's this kind of like red car. <laughs> I was going to try to describe it, but I really, I mean, it's kind of like a uh, car shape. Car-shaped car, car. yeah. Yeah. So they check out the car, they open it, and inside they find a name tag with the name Janet Torrens. So they track down this woman's parents to let her know, let them know that Janet's car was found, she was at the scene of this shooting, and nobody has heard from her, it's been 48 hours, and the dad goes, I told her to keep her mouth shut. And the wife is like, no, they told us not to say anything. Uh, So they're perfect, perfect people to uh, apparently be (laughs) in on some scheme, because they spilled it all immediately. Right, great dialogue, by the way, Law and Order. (laughs) It was so bad. So the dad says that... She was involved with the FBI because they were investigating the guy that she used to work for, whose name is Martine. So they stop by the FBI and they learn that Martine has been committing fraud. He's already in custody. So they're kind of like, huh, well, maybe he's not involved because he was in custody already. But they decide to kind of pursue it anyway. So at this point, they kind of think that Martine might have hired Kemp to kill Torrens before she could give information to the FBI, right? Because she was going to be an informant. And the two men, they think, were just collateral damage in this scenario. Mm -hmm. So they go interview Martine, who, again, they think is kind of the mastermind. And he says that Janet Torrens was just his bookkeeper. And I've never even heard of a man named Kemp. Everything's on the up and up. Pay no attention to the fact that I'm being indicted for fraud charges and embezzlement and all kinds of things. NBD. So they check his phone logs, and indeed, they do not find any calls to Kemp. And so they're like, huh, okay, well, that kind of dries that line of inquiry up a little bit. But then they go and check Kemp's call records to see if there are any connections. And 
Through this, they're able to see that both Martine and Kemp's had been in phone contact with a, a lawyer named Tins. I think it's Teasdale, but I my my phone kept correcting it to Tinsdale, so I'm gonna just say that for the rest of this episode. Maybe it's Tinsley. I was thinking about Tinsley as I wrote it the entire time. <laughs> so Kemp apparently had one phone call to this lawyer, Tinsdale, for 27 minutes. So they think, okay, this is our connection. Tinsdale is Martine's lawyer. Kemp got a fo- uh, Kemp was in phone contact with him, so maybe Tinsdale was kind of the the middleman in communicating Martine's orders to Kemp. So they go and interview the lawyer, Tinsdale. And he says, so what? Kemp called here. It doesn't mean I talked to him. And Logan says, we're kind of considering you an accessory in two murders. And Tinsdale says, contact my lawyer. I'm not going to speak to you anymore. So meanwhile, they go and uh, track down this other phone number that Kemp had been calling a lot the previous week. And we learn that it's this girl or this woman who is his girlfriend. But initially, she claims not to know him. By the way, this actress clearly went to the Elizabeth Berkeley School of Acting because everything is at a level 17. <laughs> she denies knowing Frank. And she's in a hurry. She's, like, grabbing her suitcase. Clear, like, she's clearly hiding things and doing a bad job of lying to the police. Uh-huh. So they put a little pressure on her, and she admits that she went out with uh, uh, Frank Kemp a couple of times. And then suddenly Logan sees on her answering machine that she's got a lot of unanswered messages. And so he's like, hey, why don't you check your messages before you go? Like, we can stick around. And so he kind of pressures her into, like, playing her (laughs) answering machine while he's there. And the very first message is from Larry Tinsdale, that lawyer. And his message says, don't talk. So they interrogate her a bit more, and they're able to crack her. And she says that she met Kemp a couple of months ago. She got involved with him because he had a bunch of cocaine, and she thought he was a dealer. She didn't think he was a killer. And she tells them she doesn't really know anything. All she really knows is that she was getting calls from Tinsdale, the lawyer, telling her that Kemp is in deep trouble, and if she can cover for him, he will give her $25,000. And all she needs to do is say that she and Kemp were together and that she dropped him off at the train station. So they're basically paying her to be Kemp's alibi. You know what she needed? She needed St. Genesius, the patron saint of uh, office printers, and maybe answering machines. Is that really the... (laughs) Did you remember that name? (laughs) It was from last week. (laughs) Oh, no, I know, but I'm really impressed that you still remembered it. (laughs) Because it cracked me up. (laughs) So good. So now they know that Martine ordered the hit, Tinsdale orchestrated it, Kemp committed it, and this woman covered it all, or was part of the cover-up. So the next scene is her meeting with Tinsdale at the park while the cops are surveilling them. They have a wire on her, and Tinsdale's like, stick to the story. Tell them that you dropped him at the train station. Here's an envelope with $25,000. The cops immediately pick him up, arrest him for bribery, tampering with a witness, and conspiracy to commit murder. And they choose to bring the three men, Martine, Tinsdale, and Kemp, to trial jointly. And all three of them plead not guilty. Shock. Yeah. Robinette spots that Tinsdale's lawyer is a really big hotshot named Arthur Gould. And he tells Stone, by the way, you're up against Arthur Gould, who's apparently legendary. And we learn through this episode that Stone has been up against him before and has lost. And it's kind of like a... um, Like a rivalry. Yeah. Or like a... Oh, it's like a sore point for him. Mm, mm. So Stone says, he's all fizz and no gin. (laughs) 
And Robinette says, sometimes fizz works. So <laughs> I loved that exchange. It was pretty good. Uh, so essentially he's saying Arthur Gould, he, he knows the tricks as opposed to like doing things the correct way and all of that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So they also run into the problem at this point that Tinsdale when he spoke to Logan and Soretta, said, you must speak to my lawyer. So the fact that the girlfriend was acting as an agent of the police when they surveilled him makes that tape inadmissible. So it kind of fucks up their plan. D.A. Schiff tells Stone and Robinette to get Martine to roll, even though he's the kingpin behind this whole thing, so that they can at least get Tinsdale and Kemp, which Stone doesn't really love. He doesn't want to let the big fish off the hook to get the other two guys. Mm -hmm. So he talks to Gould, doesn't really get anywhere. Gould ends up filing motions to suppress the knife and the tape of the girlfriend talking to Tinsdale. But at the suppression hearing, the judge decides he's going to admit the knife, but not the tape. And at this point, Gould files a motion to get Stone kicked off of the case because he says that he's a biased party in this because he served on law committees with Tinsdale. So he shouldn't be involved in trying this case. So Stone and Robinette chat for a second, and they decide that they will sever the cases, and that Stone will try Martine and Kemp, and Robinette will try Tinsdale, because Robinette doesn't have that uh, conflict of interest or or connection. Yeah. Unfortunately, this kind of seems to have played into Gould's hand, and it's implied that that's what he wanted all along, because he essentially tells Stone that he has ruined his chances by severing these cases. But Stone actually finds a way to turn this to his advantage because the tape of Tinsdale couldn't be used against Tinsdale, but he can use it against Kemp and Martine. Mm. So using that, he says to Kemp, "This you're all going down. Roll now and give me information on Tinsdale and tell me the location of Janet Torrin's body. They get that. They And using that, they get Tinsdale to roll. And so now they've got what they need to prosecute Martine. And at this point, Gould realizes he's been kind of outplayed. And so he, his client, Martine, changes his plea from not guilty to guilty. And the judge sentences him to three terms of 25 years to life for orchestrating the murder of Janet Torrens and the two other men who are kind of collateral damage. By the way, when he's sentenced, the actor chose to make a facial expression that reminded me of like if you took a pudding cup away from a little child. <laughs> like it was it wasn't like, oh my god, I'm going to prison. It was, oh shucks, I'm not getting my pudding. Like I'm about to throw a tantrum. Yes. Like the look they make right before they're about to cry. Yes. So on the courthouse steps, Gould acknowledges Stone's win and he's like, good job. Hey, let's get lunch. And then just drives away. And Robinette says, you'd actually get lunch with him? And Stone's closing line is, only if he orders crow. And that's the end of the episode. (laughs) I love these old-timey phrases. All fizz and no gin. (laughs) I'm going to have to start bringing that back. I'm going to reference that at work now. I've never had a gin fizz, and you know I love gin. I don't think I I would... I think fizzes are always, like, egg whites, right? I think so. That's usually the fizz part. I think that's gross. I hate egg whites and drinks. I'm into it. Well, great. Congratulations. <laughs> well, great job. <laughs> on the episode. <laughs> Thank you. And on the bartending. Thank you. Oh, are you ready? Do you have any guesses? I really don't have any guesses. Um, no, I don't. I'm... I'm Entering into this with fresh eyes, clear eyes, clear hearts, can't lose, or whatever that Friday night's like Friday night lights slogan is. I was thinking more like clear eyes with moisturizer. 
<laughs> Visine. This podcast sponsored by Visine. Imagine. That would be amazing. Well, okay, so this episode was based on what came to be known as the CBS Murders. CBS, like the the TV company? Yes. Okay. And that's what it's referring to also. <laughs> um, and I don't think I've heard of this before, but when I researched it, there are some details that sort of sound familiar. So are you ready to jump in? I sure am. Okay. Uh, before I begin, I just wanted to call out one of the resources I used today because okay. I thought it was really, I thought it was great. And okay. it's either called My Life of Crime or Bonnie's Blog of Crime. Because okay. both are listed on the website, but okay. the, the URL suggests it's my life of crime. Um, okay. The word URL for it, I'm going to put it in the description also, but it's uh, mylifeofcrime.wordpress.com. Okay. And so it's kind of like a, a blogger who blogs about true crime. Yes. And okay. what I like about it is especially the blog articles are largely focused on the victims. Awesome. Yeah. And so when I was trying to find information about the victims of this crime, she has pages dedicated like specifically to the victims rather than the usual format where it's like the perpetrator. Yes. And so the perpetrator on her pages is like the the last part of it. And awesome. um I just wanted to share like what seems to be her mission on her okay. web page and I just it sounds sort of in line with what we do. So she writes my focus is mostly on the victims and on justice. The victim needs to be always the center and focus of justice. Remember the victims. Mm. Too often the victim is overlooked or forgotten throughout the justice process and afterwards. The accused and convicted seem to get more rights and are thought about, even remembered more than the victim. This is wrong and it should not be this way. So here, remember the victim, not the accused convicted. This is not to say that I believe in forgetting the wrongfully wrongfully accused or convicted. Most of the time, the quote-unquote hero-worshipping of criminals are those who raped, murdered, and otherwise hurt other people, and that is wrong and will not be tolerated here. Hmm. Cool. Love that. Go, Bonnie. Go, Bonnie. So check it out, and it's pretty comprehensive. Like, I just looked at a few other pages. Check it out. Very cool. Um, and so that's one of the resources I use. The rest, of course, will be on the website. And let's begin. So... April 12, 1982, just around 6 p.m., 37-year-old Margaret Barbera was leaving her job and heading to her car. Her blue BMW was parked on the roof of Pier 52's lot on the west side of Manhattan, uh, but unbeknownst to her, she was not alone on this rooftop. Is it Barbera, like Hannah Barbera? I think it is, yeah. Okay. No relation that I know of. <laughs> okay, great. So she gets to her car and she's attempting to put the key in the door, and she's struggling a little bit. And a man sneaks up on her and grabs her. But as this altercation is occurring, three men who work for the network CBS exit onto the rooftop as well to get to their cars, and they witness a man struggling to put a woman's body into the trunk of a silver or white van. Most articles said it was silver, including the, the documentary I watched, but there are some that say it could have been white. Uh, their names were Edward Benford, who was 59, Leo Kuranuki, who was 54, and Robert Schultz, who was 58. Um, they approached the man, who they're witnessing, put the woman in the car, or struggling to, um, at his van, and they want to intervene. And a witness says that the man fatally shot all three of them in the head. Holy shit. <laughs> One shot each time right to the head. And Wow. The theory is that a silencer was used because the gunshots were not heard on any other floor of the of the parking deck. 
I guess that could explain why we didn't hear them on the show, too. I think so. Like, if he was meant to be kind of a contract killer, I guess he would have used a silencer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it becomes like a detail of the case that there was no sound made. So he speeds off after doing this, and one witness, Anthony Silva, claims that he tried to get a parking attendant's attention but failed to do so, and then he has to go back to get him to call 911, and by the time he gets back, the van that was on the roof... Um, had left it was anthony silva one of the three men or he was another person who saw those three guys get killed he was one witness who says that he arrived on the roof and saw what was happening as he was hiding behind another car i see okay and then he said he like jumped in a car and like drove down and told the parking attendant like at the gate like oh three guys got hit upstairs but it seems like in my opinion that the witness is embellishing a little bit to be honest okay but they ultimately get the parking attendant to call 911. Um, again, by that time, the van had left and was nowhere to be found. The police chief would go on to say about the three victims on the roof that they, quote, They came forward selflessly and did try to assess, assist Miss Barbera. They acted heroically. Unfortunately, it had tragic results, end quote. So all three men lose their lives on the roof of that building in an instant. Man. Yeah. And not surprisingly, these three heroes are like a footnote in this story. Um, yeah. Not much is known about them. Many articles do not list their names. They're just simply listed as three CBS three employees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was able to find, luckily, one article that speaks of them a little bit in order to give, like, it's an article that was giving funeral information now, I believe, but oh, okay. it does provide some information about them. So I want to share what I found from that. So Edward Benford was from Hawthorne, New York, and worked for CBS for 34 years. He was a manager in the videotape maintenance unit and was survived by his brother. Leo Kuranuki was 54 from Great Neck, Long Island, and he managed the studio maintenance for news, sports, and soap opera broadcasting. He was with the company 28 years, born in Manhattan, and served as an army sergeant in World War II. He was Hmm. survived by a sister. And Robert Schultz was 58 from Clifton, New Jersey, where I, by the way, worked for seven years. (laughs) So I'm very familiar with Clifton, New Jersey. He was a technician in engineering and development testing, and he would um, evaluate TV equipment. He was with uh, CBS for 31 years, and he was a shop steward for the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers for six years at the time of his death. He was born in Patterson, which literally is one town away from the last town I lived in, New Jersey, and was an army sergeant in World War II as well. He was survived by a wife and son. It's so interesting to, just as you were saying that, like the fact that they were all with CBS for like 30 some odd years, Mm -hmm. it's just so interesting how, how much work has changed. Like people... The odds of somebody staying in a what with one company for thirty years are so small these days. Oh my gosh! And I bet those positions don't even exist anymore. Probably not. So the story, of course, doesn't end there. And part of the reason that these three men get overshadowed in this case is because the rest of it is equally terrible, and they're Ugh. unfortunately not the only victims. So when police investigate the scene, they find that a toothpick had been shoved into Margaret Barbera's lock on the driver's side. P.S. I failed to mention that in the episode. They did do that in the episode, too. Oh, did they? I forgot about that. Yeah, they were, like, trying to open her car and saw that there was, like, ma- like a toothpick and 
it looked like somebody had been trying to get into her car. Mm, okay. So on this, in this version of it, someone had stuck the toothpick in the car to prevent her from being able to open it. Uh, oh, maybe that's what it was. Okay, yeah. that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> so while she was struggling with her keys at the car, that's when she was um, abducted. Gotcha. Her keys, however, a purse, and a pair of women's shoes are found on the ground near her car, as well as some blood, and they're able to identify her through her ID and registration and stuff in the car. Mm-hmm. So, Margaret. Margaret Barbera was born in Manhattan, but grew up in Queens, and after she graduated high school in 1961, she became a bookkeeper for the W.T. Grant Company, and later she becomes a computer operator. By the age of 30, she had graduated NYU with a B.A. in business administration, which reminds me of those commercials where it's Sally Struthers being like, do you want to make more money? Of course, we all do. <laughs> I feel like... I thought, it, I thought you were going to reference um, Shannon Doherty. <laughs> oh, college connection? Yes. So she achieves that degree in 1973, and then she began to pursue grad school, but she only ends up attending it for one year before before she decides to drop out. She lived in the same studio apartment for 17 years, and she was described by the superintendent and neighbors as sort of a mystery or a homebody, which, hmm. you know, I don't think is unusual. I don't really I, talk to my I neighbors. I think that's how people would, I if any of you, if you asked a single one of my neighbors, I think that's exactly what they would say about me. <laughs> yeah, they'd be like, uh, he has dogs and he, he kind of stays inside otherwise for me. So that's me. <laughs> that's you. <laughs> she, that's... um, that's half the people I know. I mean, especially right now, everybody is a homebody at this moment. I'm not mad about it. So she loses her accounting job in 1977 due to a lot of absences. And she ends up working with a temp agency taking, you know, temporary office jobs until about June of 1980. So she's hired by Candor Diamond Corporation, owned by Erwin Margulies, or Margolis. I don't know what I'm going to say. I'll probably say both. He, he <laughs> owns a diamond company? Yes. Er, Candor <laughs> Diamond Corporation. Very fancy. I feel like, I mean, CEO of any big company, I'm sure you're making a ton of money, but to be the CEO of a diamond company, that guy must have been rich. Mm. Well... Pretty quickly in this job, she's given the role of comptroller, which I had to look up because I didn't know what that meant. But it's like chief accountant, I guess, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she's she decides to recommend a friend of hers named Jenny Sue Chin to the role of accountant. And so they hire okay. her as well. So now she's working with her buddy. Okay. Jenny had met Margaret through her sister. Uh, they became fast friends. And Jenny at the time is married to a man named Edward and lives with him and their four children in Teaneck, New Jersey. Again, my neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> um, there are reports that Barbara had claimed to have cancer. She would use this as the reason she was absent from her previous job a lot for different treatments. And it's said that she would talk to her friend Jenny about her mysterious illness sometimes it's referred to as cancer some people didn't know what she had but she hmm. complains of having some sort of illness okay this comes into play at her current job at candor diamonds because clients start trying to call to get financial records and they're told that the comptroller is out because she's getting treatment for cancer or for some sort of illness and they start to get like frustrated because they're having such a hard hmm. time getting their financial records yeah in July of 1981, one of their clients, the Maguire Company, had them audited under suspicion of fraud because they believed they had been re reporting fictional funds to them. Upon this audit, they found almost $6 million in sales that were fictitious. 
Dang. And when they go into the safe that's supposed to hold $2.3 million worth of diamonds, there are just a few handguns. No diamonds. What the fuck? So Erwin Margolis says th- that they must have been robbed. He's he's freaking out. He doesn't understand. Um, and he, you know, claims to not know where the diamonds have gone. Wow. Okay. I wonder, okay, I'm trying to suspend judgment and I like not because I don't know who's done what yet, mm-hmm. but right now, Margaret sounds like a mastermind criminal mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, embezzler. Regardless of what happened to the money or what happened to the funds or the diamonds, the company is forced into bankruptcy pretty shortly after this. Mm-hmm. And uh, he begins invoking his Fifth Amendment right at the advice of his lawyer, Henry Osterreicher. Okay, so he's not all squeaky clean in this, then. He's got nothing to say. Okay. When he does have anything to say, he implicates that the diamonds were, like we said, stolen by Margaret. She was demanding $100,000 for their return. And this strategy may have worked in court, but at the same time as this was all happening, Margaret had already been approached by the police and the FBI. She had Hmm. actually agreed to cooperate with them, and she pled guilty to a conspiracy count becoming a federal witness in March of 1982. Okay, so let me just recap. Mm -hmm. So she disappears in April. In March, she had agreed to be an informant for the FBI. Correct. And informing against the boss? Correct. Okay, great. So in a closed hearing on March 25th, two weeks before she goes missing— she testified that Irwin had admitted to generating fake invoices to extort money, um, and she knew about this from pretty early on in her position. But she was assured that he had a plan to pay it all back and get the money back in return on his investments, and she just he just needed her to help him buy some time. Girl, run. Mm-hmm. Do not work for a company where they're, like, lying about things and covering up money. Mm-hmm. Hello. So she also reportedly had a bag of financial records to prove this because she caught wise to him trying to implicate her instead. And so she had oh. taken a bunch of documents and taken them home with her. Okay. So we're back to the incident on the rooftop where we begin. That's just the background information. Okay. When police identify who the victim is and they know it's her... Um, based on her belongings and everything left behind, they immediately recognize her name, but not for reasons you'd think, because they're totally unaware of the federal investigation. And at this point, they don't know that she's dead for sure, right? Like she could have been abducted? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So they're unaware of the federal investigation. They remember her name because she was apparently aggressively searching searching for and trying to get police assistance in the disappearance of her friend in January approximately jenny mm-hmm. okay. so two months earlier in january jenny su chin goes missing jenny had been holding on to a blue duffel bag for margaret and her husband believed it's a whole jewelry her husband was friends oh. with margaret so she, he wasn't too suspicious about it but he noticed that she was like hiding it away in her closet a lot so hmm. one night he goes into the bag and discovers it held financial documents for candor diamond okay and he didn't want to know what it was about he didn't want to know anything about it. They were not associated with that company anymore. Everybody had known it had gone bankrupt and, you know, it was bad news. So he doesn't want her involved in any of this. And mm-hmm. he's like, get rid of this bag. I'm sorry. I don't care if it's your friend. And by the way, through her entire employment, she was not involved at all. She only okay. knew anything about it because of the documents Margaret had given her and because Margaret had confided in her. On January 4th, uh, Jenny goes to Margaret's house to return the bag, and the next day at around 7 p.m., she phoned home to say she was on her way back. And her husband was like, okay, see you soon. She was supposed to go to an appointment with a psychotherapist that she, like a standing appointment, 
Mm-hmm. She never makes it to the appointment, and Jenny was never seen again. Wow. On that day, there are two teenage witnesses that say they witnessed a woman f- fitting Jenny's description, uh, leaving Margaret's apartment building, and a man throwing a blanket over her head at a car, throwing her inside of it, and speeding off, being followed by a white or silver van. On January 13th, which is, uh, you know, less than two weeks later, her vehicle Mm -hmm. is found on West 36th Street with a 22 caliber shell casing inside and Hmm. a piece of the carpet cut out, but blood that is remaining in the backseat, which will ultimately match Jenny. Okay. Uh, The car was red, so maybe it's related to the car in the show. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was car shaped, too. But it seems like they kind of, Law and Order kind of blended Margaret and Jenny together. Yeah, kind of. So it's at this point that Barbara's lawyer claims that she asked for protection. She was worried about her friend being missing, and she was worried mm-hmm. about what it could mean for her as well. So her landlord, who has previously said she's very like quiet, also says that around this time she was claiming that she was worried and that someone was coming after her. Two months or so later, you know, she's she's missing as well now. So... yeah. You know, there's some merit to what these people are saying. (laughs) The day after Margaret's abducted on the rooftop, um, her body is found in a New York alleyway. So she has random bits of, like, debris, um, such as, like, cellophane in her hair that are not present anywhere else around her. So they are supposing her body's been transported there and dumped. Hmm. She'd been shot once in the head by a .22, which, again, I don't know what these weapons are but let's just remember the 22 was used for uh this murder as well as the three murders on the rooftop and a 22 shell casing was found in jenny's car okay so it's it's consistent Mm -hmm. and so they eventually will investigate all of these rounds and they all match up they all have a a consistent pattern on them that would mean they all came from the same gun that makes Mm -hmm. sense yeah okay so investigators now turn their attention to the van And so they find records at the lot for an application for a parking pass for a van. All of the cars that go through this particular lot have to apply for a pass, and then they have to have it on file, and they're um, checked by the parking lot attendant to make sure that the license plate matches the description. Yada, yada. High security. I know, exactly. So luckily for this, they have the records of any type of vehicle. There's only one van that goes on that roof that has a parking pass, and then there's one that had applied for a parking pass. And okay. it's this van that they believe is the van in question. They look at the license plate, but when they research it, it's fake. <laughs> but luckily, the man who filled out this form, and they have the original document, crossed out a plate number that was originally written and written wrote mm-hmm. in this fake one. So they end up getting a match, and the application for this parking pass was filled out by a Donald Nash. It turns out this vehicle is known to the police because it was surveilled coincidentally during a mob investigation recently. Due to, the, I think it was like the pizza connection case, which it's very unrelated, but they were doing this sting on this mob investigation. So they were going up and down streets at known hangouts of the mob. And they okay. were, like, clocking every car. And yeah. so this van and this was, was one, one of, them. of them. Yeah. So okay. because of this, they have a the, the VIN number for the van. Hmm. And they know that the location that they kept seeing it at a couple weeks before Margaret's murder happens to just be a few blocks away from Margaret's apartment. Just hmm. total coincidence. And so okay. they determined based on this information that she had been stalked for weeks. 
Donald Nash, the man who filled out this form for this van, has a record and is also connected to the Westies, who we could remember from, I think, our first season? You know what's funny is, I, it sounds familiar, but all I can think of is the dogs. <laughs> I know, right? Every time I see Westie, I have to think what, of that dog. <laughs> remind me what the Westies are. So, I don't think our case was, like, directly re- related to them, but it had, like, links to them. And the Westies were Irish immigrants that settled in the New York area, and they were, like, known for gang activity. Oh, um, I might have talked about them when I did the the case of the guy who fled oh, Ireland. Right, exactly. Because yeah, I think there was like implications that he could have been connected. Yeah, and okay. um, yeah, all of their murders should be noted that they use a twenty two caliber gun. So interesting. It's not unlike the same pattern we saw with the murders we've seen. So everything's kind yeah. of like falling into place that this Donald Nash character is involved, obviously. So. In their efforts to track him down and connect him to the victims or to um, Jenny, who is just missing, uh, or even to Candor Diamond, they run into so many obstacles and they have a lot of circumstantial evidence, but they can't find something to just like link him to it. And they really can't find mm-hmm. him either. Hmm. Ultimately, what ends up giving them like their pay dirt moment are phone records from a payphone, <laughs> much like the episode. Okay. It's a little different, though. So there's a payphone right near the site where Margaret's body was found. So they, you know, get all the records from that, and they go over it for a long time. And they find that a call was made from that payphone to Nash's residence, which is found to be in Keensburg, New Jersey, which I have no idea where that is. (laughs) Um, But they find him. They find his residence pretty quickly. And when they go there, he's, he's inside. So they don't really have to do a lot more tracking down. (laughs) because <laughs> they, they found, found him. him he's not hiding he's just living <laughs> his life normally completely unaware they don't want to tip him off and they don't have enough to arrest him and they think he's like if he's the person they're looking for he's a pretty sophisticated criminal so okay. they're just going to track him until they have a reason to arrest him that's their that's their plan they've got three trucks on him there's helicopters like far far above ready to follow him as he leaves and so the next day after they find him he leaves his house and they, he's being tracked um, there's a lot of information about the the pursuit. They think he's going to go international at one point because he takes them to Newark Airport, but he just goes there to pick up a black van from long-term parking, and then he gets in that mm. instead. Hmm. Um, he had gone with one of his colleagues who was driving his car instead. So now there's two cars um, following each other. Gotcha. And there's three people tailing these two cars as well as a helicopter. Okay. Going, I feel like I would notice a helicopter following that's me. That's what I thought too, but the they just kept saying like the helicopter was like very far above so that the cars didn't have to get too close. Um, so I mean, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I think the helicopters were a fair distance enough away to just trail the location of the car so that the other cars didn't have to get too close. That's what okay. I'm gathering. I don't know how this stuff works. If anyone knows out there how these things work. Yeah, if you are a uh, helicopter pilot who uh, tails people, please let us know how that works. I mean, because in movies, whenever the helicopters get involved, it's always like so loud, you know? Oh, so loud. There's so much wind. (laughs) They're like right above the car on the freeway. Yeah, so that's what I was thinking too. They're having a hard time getting him anywhere. They even track him to a hotel at one point. And while he's sleeping at the hotel, cops try to look at the VIN on the dashboard. But he Mm -hmm. has it obscured with like documents. And mm, they can't go tricky. into it. Exactly. So they keep following him. They eventually end up in Kentucky. And they have um, officials in Kentucky set up a roadblock on the freeway, on the highway. 
so that he has to go through it and it's supposed to just be like standard procedure and it's a big deal but they do it when he gets to the front he still has the vin obscured and there's no way for them to like casually get him to move it and so they let him go the whole roadblock was essentially for nothing so so okay so at this point i just want to clarify they're hunting him down because they think he at least committed the murder of these men maybe of margaret maybe it was involved in jenny's murder or disappearance but they're just trailing him to see if he does anything illegal they basically don't have anything but circumstantial evidence because the closest link they have is if this van is the same van but they're unable to match it because it's black and it's also obscured with the van number and as the helicopter is following the van he's noticing that on the top of the van the black paint is not as thick and in the sunlight you could see that there's a lighter color underneath it Mm. so they're like really trying they're banking everything on this car so vin number matching the vin number they have for the silver van and then they have something on him okay so essentially the roadblock doesn't work but in kentucky they are able to get him pulled over by a state trooper because he's doing some sort of traffic violation and on the registration they get the vin number they get it back to the team and they match it so it's the correct van once they have this they State troopers surround the car, and he's getting arrested, obviously, and he asks Mm -hmm. them what it's for, and they're like, well, your car has been reported stolen. Once they have the VIN number and they verify it, they run it through DMV, and it's reported stolen. And so he says, this isn't, there wouldn't be this many people for just the DMV, for just the Mm -hmm. stolen car. But they just, they say, that's what it's for, and he's like, sure. So (laughs) they take him into custody, and forensics goes over the van and the contents, and they match that particles in the back of the van matched the particles that were in barbara's hair that didn't match her surroundings that cellophane stuff mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. among other a okay. few things cellophane is the one that stuck out to me and okay. um there's two blood types identified present in the back of the van and they match margaret's and jenny's Ugh, i was gonna ask if it matched jenny's so they have all of this and nash is in custody so they're able to now you know obviously go all out with this investigation into him and they go to search his home when they search his home, they notice like a really strange detail, and I'm very impressed at investigators for noticing this. On the outside of his garage, there's a bullet hole into the garage, but when they go in the garage, they can't find the exit place. So they find a secret room in his garage where the gunshot actually exited, and there's many more bullet holes in this room. There are tons of shell casings on the floor, uh, all 22. And the sink inside the room has dried blood in it. Um, I couldn't find a lot more information on what's in the room, but in the documentary that shows the room, there's also like uh-huh. a bed with a chain on it, but it's not. Okay. In the so this is like a, it's like a kidnap murder torture room. It seems like a, where I'm going to like keep and clean up bodies. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, they have all of this, but what really gets him in the end is phone records. So in addition to the phone records that ultimately find him, they like now go through his phone records and people who had called him and try to match everything up. There's like boxes and boxes and boxes they have to go through. But they find that Barbara was being watched very closely because she was, you know, an informant to the FBI. And her number was unlisted. But there is a phone call placed from Nash's nephew's house 
to Barbera's unlisted number from this residence a week prior to her death. Huh. Okay. They get his nephew. They ask his nephew, and he cooperates and says that, yes, his uncle was there, and his uncle probably made the call, and he would believe that he would have done it. Shady. That's just his nature. Yeah. Like, it was part of his covering everything Mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. So his own nephew says that this makes perfect sense to him, and he doesn't doubt it at all. And the prosecution asserts that Erwin Margolis hired Donald Nash to kill both women because he believed that they were turning evidence over to the FBI regarding his bankruptcy and fraud case. Okay. The three CBS workers were, like you said in your story, collateral damage. They were at the wrong place in the wrong time. They are able to also call a witness named Dave Owen. I only saw his name in one article, so Mm -hmm. I don't know how credible this is, but he testifies for the prosecution that Margolis and Nash were introduced by him. So he introduced Erwin Margolis to Nash because he knew Erwin was having financial troubles and was looking for a hitman. And he (sighs) turns this over for like immunity on the case, of course, and, you know, nothing prosecuted against him. And he says that he was present during conversations where Nash agreed to carry out the hits for $8,000 each. So it's also found during trial that Margolis hired a private eye to track Margaret prior to her murder, and that's how he had found out that she was cooperating with federal agents. Right. This was corroborated Mm. by witness Henry Osterreicher, who, remember earlier, was Irwin's lawyer, former lawyer. And he also testifies in trial to knowing about the setup of Jenny's murder. He also said in the trial that Jenny's murder was a mistake because they thought she was involved, and there's actually a former employee that was more involved. Um, Her name is, like, mentioned briefly, but only once, and she's not involved. But So that she he admits to hearing about the setup for the murder and admits that afterwards they knew it was a mistake. Imagine being that other woman Mm -hmm. who, like, actually was involved and seeing the like margaret and jenny go missing and being like um right oh my god that must be such a like happy that it didn't happen to you but oh my god it happened to people who weren't even involved in it right and then imagine like looking over your shoulder every day because who knows yeah yeah so the trial for nash goes on for eight weeks and he's found guilty of four counts of secondary second degree murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder he's sentenced to 100 years to life wow okay and on (laughs) a hundred years to life Mm -hmm. i think each count was 25 years um to life and then the second the conspiracy count the judge said oh that can be run concurrently but the four counts Uh had to be run back to back so ultimately life when he's found guilty of all that the jury only delivered for 13 hours okay yeah so later on after a four-week trial on june 21st June 21st, 1984, 49-year-old Erwin Mercolis was sentenced to 50 to life, found guilty on two counts of second-degree murder and one for conspiracy. Hmm. So he's found guilty for just the murders of the two females on the case, not for the three men on the roof. And Mm -hmm. even though they can't find the body of Jenny, he's still convicted of the murder because they have enough evidence to suggest that she's, she's dead. Yeah. This ends up being more of a life sentence because he had already been found guilty just before this of the fraud uh, charges in the bankruptcy case. Okay. And that had a 28-year sentence attached to it. Yeah. And the judge said he had to fulfill that 28-year sentence first before these sentences would 
or gotcha. begin. And so it's yeah. two 25-year-to-life sentences, which is a 50-to-life sentence. So essentially a life sentence for this guy as well. And he's probably like 40 or 50 at this point, right? Like, not today, but back then. Yes, exactly. He yeah, was, so. uh, I actually have it right here. He was 49. Yeah, so 50 years mm-hmm. <laughs> to life. He's going to be in prison for the rest of his yeah. life. So on that topic, I can't find the exact year, but Irwin ends up dying from health complications, likely mm. related to diabetes, because he was diabetic, mm. a few years after sentencing. So he he dies in prison, but he doesn't spend a lot of time in prison before he passes on. Wow. The story for Nash gets a little bit darker, however, believe it or not. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. So on October 19th, 1994, so this is, you know, what, 12 years something after the sentencing? 10 years? Yeah. He's on kitchen duty in, I think, the second prison he's he's in. And he's with fellow inmate Roy Tucker, who was serving out his own 25-year murder sentence. At around 7.30 in the morning on this October 19th day, Nash produces a mace-like weapon that he's been hiding, and it's made of a 12-inch long board with spiked razor blades inside of it. And he... Nash has this. Yes. He uses this to slit the throat of Roy Tucker right next to him. Ugh. Wow. Um, there's no clear motive. The men <laughs> didn't have any, like, known feuds or anything going on between them. There was no, like, prison rivalry. The only link between them was that they had both been in Attica together previously, but records uh-huh. there didn't show that they knew each other very well even. So so do you think he was like hired within prison to kill that guy? It's possible, but there's not a lot more information on it other than like, you know, the prison was on lockdown while they were investigating. Yeah. And then in 2006, Nash dies in prison at the age of 70 years old. Um, wow. So Jenny <laughs> Su Chin's body, as I said, has never been found. And one interesting thing that... I've seen in literally one or two articles. Yeah. When they describe the relationship between Jenny Su Chin and Margaret Barbera, it's usually listed as coworkers and friends, but there's two articles that list them as coworkers and lovers. Oh, interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. And every other article excludes this, so it's really unclear if this is true information. So I tried to dig a little deeper. I couldn't really find much, but there is one message board out there. That's run mm-hmm. by the lesbian community, and it lists mm-hmm. these two women as, as queer people that were victims of a crime, hmm, and okay. they have traveled together in 1981 to Switzerland, just the two of them, again later on to London, but again, there's no mention of it. Um, gotcha. The only thing yeah. I will say I mean... is that the, the day that Jenny goes missing, she had spent the night at Margaret's apartment and was leaving the next huh. day, and this is corroborated by all accounts, including her husband. Um, who didn't think this mm-hmm. was unusual. So, who knows? And it, it should be said that the two people who led the charge in finding her, including hiring a private eye of them, for them on their own, which, you know, was costly at the time, and conducting yeah. their own investigation was her friend Margaret and her husband. And her friend Margaret paid $1,200 for the investigation. That's just one detail afterwards. Um, other than that, Interesting. this is the end of the story of the murders of... <laughs> Margaret Barbera, Leo Kuranuki, Robert Schultz, and Edward Benford, and the abduction and, you know, presumed murder of Jenny Su Chin. Wow. I was was holding out hope for a minute, until you got to, they found, like, DNA evidence matching Jenny to the back of the van. Yeah. I was like, maybe she's in witness protection. Right? (laughs) No. But that doesn't seem likely anymore. No. It's terrible. Wow. 
That's sad. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I also feel terrible for those three guys, the CBS workers. Like, yeah, they were just trying to do a good thing. Three guys in their 50s just going to their car after like a, you know, a day at work. Work day. Yeah. And they just see something and they're like, you know, you do the right thing. You see something and you want to do something. And it, there's no reports that they were like trying to be violent. I mean, this guy was a, a hired killer. So there was there right. was no chance for them as soon as they saw something, yeah. you know? Yeah, that's, it's one of those things where it's like, if they had been five minutes later, maybe they wouldn't have stumbled upon this and been killed. So, yeah. But I mean, had they not gotten up there, who knows if any of this would have been witnessed. That's true. Yeah. Oy, nothing good came out of all of that. I know. I know. Well, good job telling that story. Thank you. I, I feel like researching it, some of the details sounded really familiar like the um the investigation into the diamond company and the her to her working with the FBI against them and then the the diamonds being missing that detail somehow like rings like a bell in my mind that's about it i don't I remember mean, it's, this it's kind of like the plot of a lot of movies true that could be true yeah. uh like when you <laughs> when you said when you described them opening the vault and all the diamonds were missing i was like oh my god it sounds like a movie right that's true <laughs> <sighs> wow how would you uh how would you rate this episode on the the closeness to the crime okay i'm gonna say for watchability the episode is gonna get a d minus <laughs> because it it didn't really it, there was a lot of misleading unnecessary information that wasn't like interesting red herrings it was just kind of noise mm -hmm. so um i'm gonna give them a d minus for watchability on the episode uh but they they stuck pretty close to the crime other than you know making jenny and margaret kind of the the same person in the episode i'll give them a b minus for how they did that okay what about you i would agree with you on the the watchability i found it very hard to keep up with the episode maybe not yeah. even keep up but to keep interested <laughs> <laughs> yes and so i gave them a d plus for watchability okay. and for crime i agree i think they stayed remarkably close to the crime i think they found clever ways to add in details that could have been like overlooked like the red car the the payphone um, yeah the toothpick and the thing yeah, yeah so i actually gave them an a i'm gonna give them a solid a yeah. i thought it was very very close yeah, um, what I think was kind of bad about the episode was the murder of, or I think her name was Janet in the episode. Mm -hmm. I forget, Jennifer, I something forget. with a J. You know, we kind of find out she's dead in the last like five minutes of the episode. So the whole time the episode is focused on these three men and what they might have done while they're wondering about this woman's disappearance. And so I guess like the the emotional impact of the way that they constructed the story makes it less engaging. Mm -hmm. And you know what? It's kind of funny that you say that because you're right. They just, she is a footnote in the case, in the totally. actual story. And like, yeah. even when they find her body, they dedicate like one scene with background music where they're like zipping yeah. it up in a bag. There's no explanation. Yeah. There's no like follow up with the family. And, um, I mean, that's not much unlike, you know, what ends up happening with Jenny. She's never found and she's almost forgotten. And, yeah. uh, you know, where's, where's the justice for her family, you know? Yeah, that's sad. Right. Oh, my God. By the way, 
Did you know that our podcast is free? And we have new episodes every week, so you should subscribe if you haven't already. And it also is absolutely free to write us a review, and it really helps us out. Yes, and if you tell a friend who you think might be interested, word of mouth is really the best way to get any new listeners. I mean, I just did it at a gas station, so what's your excuse? Honestly, <laughs> yeah, go talk to people at gas stations and tell them about our podcast. Yeah, just don't tell them your home address or anything like that. But yes, tell them about yeah. our podcast. Get us, get us out there. We love connecting with our listeners, so feel free to send us an email at rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Ripped Headlines. And now more than ever, <laughs> don't forget to check out our website at rippedheadlinespod.com where you'll find the link to our Patreon. We've got some great perks on there, like we mentioned earlier, and you get the joy of supporting one of your favorite podcasts. And you can check out our brand new merch store. Yes. Thank you so much for listening to Ripped from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next time, and until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye. Bye.